and ask you to be seated, and uh, we'll let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. Good to see uh, each of you here this morning, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. Book of Genesis, chapter 18, we're going to look at the second half of Genesis 18 this morning. Let's begin reading at verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And if you remember, the beginning of chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, were about three visitors from heaven, two angels, one a manifestation of God in flesh. Abraham sees them, understands that it is a divine encounter, and serves a meal for them, a tremendous, beautiful meal that in many ways looks forward, I believe, to the communion table. After that encounter with them and rehearsal about the promises, God just just restating for Abraham what he's going to do for him, the unbelievable things that Abraham and Sarah have fallen into doubt about, God is reaffirming his truth and his promises that he's going to be there and remain true to his word. After that kind of an encounter, they get up to leave. And what does Abraham do? Abraham just is kind of like clinging. He won't let them go. He continues on with them in this walk and discussion. He walked along with them, verse 16 says, to see them on their way. Verse 17, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? And I I would put in my Bible, I'd write in parentheses, my friend. Because throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll find Abraham referred to as the friend of God. Not simply an acquaintance, but someone who knew the heart of God because God is revealing his heart to him. Shall I reveal to Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned and went away towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord, the third of the three. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole place. For their sake. And then you go through six iterations, okay, where Abraham appeals to God and God says, I'll spare for that many. I'll spare for that many. I'll spare for that. And he whittles it all the way down to ten. Okay, where God finally says to Abraham, Abraham, if there are ten righteous people in the city, then I will spare the city. Verse 33 then, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. This morning as we move into this text, I want to remind you of the difference that a few righteous people can make. Because ultimately this is a story about a man who intercedes with God on behalf of a city. 
And ultimately, it concludes with the fact that a few righteous people can make a significant or substantial difference. Just like the, the slogan that the Marines use, God is, or the Marines are saying, we're looking for a few good men. You know what God is looking for? God is looking for a few righteous people that He can deploy to impact their world. That is what God is seeking to do. You can look through the Word of God and find God's eyes running to and fro, looking for a group of people or a few select individuals who will devote themselves to the cause of Christ and righteousness and make a difference in their sphere of influence. I think of people like Esther, like Daniel, like David, a few committed who could change the world. Robert Bella is a sociologist at Princeton University, and he made this observation. He said, a small group of people, 2%, devoted, can change a culture. 2% can change a culture, can make a difference. Letters to the government is one of the observations that he made. A letter can account for a thousand votes in the eyes of a politician. Okay, a few people can make a significant or substantial impact for good. It doesn't take a lot of committed people to make a difference. And what God is looking for, I believe, in this text, what He's looking for throughout time is a pure, righteous remnant that He can deploy into this world to make a difference for His kingdom. Abraham, I think, is one of those men. He's a man who is imperfect, but striving to make a difference in his world for the glory of God. And so after this dinner is over that Abraham serves to them, he pursues an encounter with God. He stays alongside. He walks with them till they're departed. And in this walking alongside, in this desire to continue in fellowship, Abraham experiences a powerful encounter with God. And in this encounter... I want us to look at two simple questions. What do we learn about God's plan for Abraham, a righteous man? Okay, and I put that in quotes because he's not a perfect man. But he has been affected by his relationship with God. And the second question we'll ask is, what do we learn about the character of God and the place of prayer? So the first question that we'll ask is this. What do we learn about God's plan for this man who is to impact the world? Verse 18, it says this. Abraham... And this is in, in the words of God. God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him. Okay, let me just give you a couple of observations from this text about Abraham real quickly. God's plan for Abraham is unalterable. Okay, he has selected Abraham. Notice how God says it. I have chosen him. Okay, and the plan that God has chosen him for is an unalterable plan. Notice how Father says this. He says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All nations on the earth will be blessed through him, which is what? It is God rehearsing Genesis chapter 12, 2 to 3. Okay, after 25 years, God's plan for Abraham is unaltered. Okay, another thought that emerges to me. God's plan for Abraham is based upon grace, not performance. And aren't you glad that God's plan for your life is not based upon your ability to live perfectly? Okay, God chose Abraham. That's what this text says. Why? Well, here's what I know. 
Okay. I know God didn't choose Abraham because Abraham was capable of living some sort of stellar, exemplary, perfect life. No, as you read these accounts, what are you finding? Abraham sounds a lot like us. He doesn't sound like some superhero in the Christian faith. He sounds like a man who struggles with things that we struggle with, who wrestles with waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled in the reality gap that we have talked about. We can look at Abraham's life and see that God's grace is sufficient. We can also see that God's purpose for Abraham was that he would make a difference, that he would have an impact in his sphere of influence. Notice how he says this in verse 18, second half. He says, he will become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will in some way be affected by, blessed by him. Okay, that is to me a remarkable statement. God has chosen Abraham with this plan in mind, that Abraham would have an impact on the world around him. And here's the question that arises. How would that happen? How would Abraham make a difference that would ultimately reach out to and affect every nation on planet Earth? Okay, how would that happen? And I think it's interesting to notice as we move into verse 19, how God plans for that promise to be fulfilled. He says, I have chosen him so that. Okay, which tells me what? This choosing of Abraham had a sovereign purpose. Folks, please understand this. If God has worked in your heart to bring you to a place of saving faith and trust in Christ, has redeemed you from your sin and made you a new creation. He has done that for a purpose. And he is intent on fulfilling that purpose. In this text, we find that one of the ways that God wants to maximize the impact of Abraham is by his influence on those around him, namely his children and then this broader scope of his household. Okay, so his immediate family and then out to his household. That's the sphere of influence that God has chosen for Abraham to impact. And down the road, God would cause that faithfulness on the part of Abraham to reach out further into the world around him. How will this impact take place? And just I just want you to notice, just pick up three very simple ideas that emerge from this, this, this text. I, will, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. And I think there's three very simple thoughts. In his relationship to his family, to his sphere of influence, what was Abraham's role? Okay, I think it's threefold. He was to be a guide, he was to be a teacher, and he was to be an example. Okay, he was to be a guide to those around him. That is to say, Abraham, I want you to lead in the realm of righteousness. I want you to step forward. Folks, understand this, particularly parents. What our children need is not another friend. What they need is a guide. They need a leader who will step up and courageously point out to them the right way to live. And God says to Abraham, I want you to direct your children. Ephesians 6.4 is the verse that floats in my mind. Bring your children up in the nurture and teaching of the Lord. Okay, just cause them, drive them in that direction towards God's plans and purposes. They need a guide. They need people who function in God's place as under shepherds in their lives. So God says that Abraham is to direct his children, to guide the ark or the path of their life. 
Our kids need our help, folks. Every parent in this room has probably at some time complained about the nature of the world that our kids are growing up in. We understand. It's a battlefield. There are a lot of minefields out there. But if all you just do is stand back and complain and make observations about how difficult it is, but you don't become a guide for your children, you're selling them short. And you're minimizing the impact that God wants you and your family to have. He chose you for a purpose. He worked salvation in your heart for a purpose. God wants us, men and women, to guide our children. He also wants us to teach them. And notice how how this is just stated. I think it's just a very simple and beautiful way. Guide them to direct them to keep the way of the Lord. Okay, to, to show them. To show them how to discern the difference between what's right and wrong. To show them the difference between wise choices and pragmatic choices. To show them how to, how to differentiate between what's okay and what is best in their lives. Teach them. What does it take to teach our kids? Here's the one thing I think today that every parent needs. Every parent today, I believe, needs courage. I believe parents need courage. You know why? We want our kids to love us. We want their friends to like us. We want all kinds of acceptance. You know what God wants? God wants truth. God wants righteousness. You know why a lot of times as parents, people tend to cave in? Because they want their kids to like them. They want to be their friends. God didn't call you to be your child's friend. God called you to be your child's leader. God called you to be the person, the people, mom and dad, that speak truth into their life. That give them a chance to direct their steps and to teach them. Which takes not simply affection, but also tough love that is willing to speak the truth even when it hurts. And I'll say this in relationship to this statement. To teach them to keep the way of the Lord. I, I'm pretty sure I said this to all my daughters. I wish I had done more in terms of sharing with my family Directly from the Word of God. I wish I had done more in that regard. To communicate over and over. Pray with them on a fairly regular basis. I wish we had taught them more of God's Word. So that it would be resonant in their minds to guide them and to direct them. Okay, I just say, Mom and Dad, look, two weeks ago, my youngest daughter turned 20. Okay? That kind of blows my mind. You're, if your kids are all above 20, you're old. Okay? You're advanced in years. Okay, and this is, I can tell you, this is the area that I regret the most. Because also it's like that. It's like that and the opportunity. It's, it's already, it's out there. The die is cast as it were. Okay, while they're in your home, while they're pliable, take time to be a guide, to be a teacher to them. But, and this is the part I think that is the ongoing impact. Be an example to them. Okay, notice how, how, how God finishes this statement. He says, he will do this by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised to him. Okay, how is Abraham to impact his children? By doing what is right and just. Folks, please understand this. Nothing will destroy the heart of your child like hypocrisy. Nothing. Nothing will destroy your child's love for people like your lack of love for your mate. Tell them to get along and you don't get along. 
Nothing will destroy them like hypocrisy. And God says he chose Abraham. Why? Because he knew that he would direct his children. Did Abraham do it perfectly? No. Abraham had scars all over his life. But there was this sense of promise from God that Abraham was going to direct them. He was going to provide for them guidance, teaching, and a good example by doing what is right and just. And the implication that flows out of this statement, I think, is this. There is some blessing for God's children that is attached to obedience. I think it's the clear implication here. If you walk in obedience to God, His blessings will begin to flow into your life. Now, let me also say this. I do not believe that it is a guarantee, okay, that every child will turn out perfectly. No. Every parent has things in the lives of their children that they would like to see changed. And some kids need massive heart change, and we pray for those things. But give your kid a chance by guiding them, by teaching them, by showing them how to put biblical truth into practice. Be an example to them. And understand that in all of this, you need the grace of God. This is a cooperative effort. Okay? Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation, mom and dad. Be an example in front of them. Why? Because God is at work with you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I don't have to look at it and say, I have to pay. How can I do all this? No, you can't do it. Go to God and say, God, I can't be the example that you want me to be. I can't be the teacher. I can't be the guide. I can't do it. And then fall on his grace. And trust him like Abraham did. Abraham fell down a number of times. God gets him back up. Restates his promises to Abraham. And says, come on, get on the road. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, what if I've blown it? Okay, well, what if you have? Go to God and say, God, today, even if your children are grown and out of the house, say, God, make me an example of righteousness. Help me to show them by my life the good and right way. And mom and dad, I want to give you this challenge because I think this is very, very important. And I give you the challenge in the form of a question, okay? Because I am concerned about this issue. God's saying, Abraham, be an example to your kids. Where did they live? They lived in Canaan. What was Canaan like? Well, it was full of the Canaanites who were people of horrific reputation and there were exemplar cities of wickedness like Sodom and Gomorrah in the vicinity. That's where Abraham was called to raise a righteous offspring that would be a blessing to the world. That's where. Okay, so the question that I put to you in the world in which we live is this. Do you believe that it is possible for a teenager, for a young adult, to live a godly life? Do you believe that it is possible for them to be morally pure? Or do you, by doubt, lower the standard, lower the expectation? Do you call your kids to righteousness, believing that if they walk in the power of the Spirit of God and follow the example by God's grace that you set, do you believe that they can be different? Do you believe that they can be a light in darkness? See, I think the sad thing is that many Christians have acquiesced to the the culture and think that some degree of failure, it's just expected, it's just its normative. You really can't overcome it. You know what? We should be speaking back to the evil one. They can overcome it. You ought to be speaking hope into the lives of your children by the grace of God. Not that that guarantees perfection. It doesn't. They will wrestle. They will struggle. They will fail. But may we give them a fighting chance as believers who claim the promises of God for our kids and encourage them to do the same thing. 
Okay, don't start your kids out with a, oh well. Okay, believe that God can work mightily and powerfully in their lives. And young person, I want to tell you this. If you commit yourself to the power of the Spirit of God, He can preserve your life for His glory. He wants to. He says to you, He says, join with me. And together, we can do Don't try it alone. But do it in the power of the Spirit of God. My efforts don't guarantee the outcome that I desire. But I am responsible to obey God in this task. So the first thing that we find is that God is is just stating to Abraham over. Abraham, I have great plans for you. Central to those plans for you is that you would teach, that you would guide, and that you would be an example to your kids so that you can make a difference in your world. Okay, that's the first question. What do we learn about God's plan for Abraham? That he would guide, that he would teach, and that he would show his children the way of God, and that he would do that because the sufficient grace of God had chosen him to be an example to his world. And you know what God wants Abraham to believe? That he can actually be that. And didn't Jesus choose us in the same way? Didn't he choose 12 people to affect the world? To make a difference, a small group of unlikely people to go out and see their culture literally changed. Folks, that's what happened. Jesus says to you and I, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You know what he wants us to do? He wants us to go out and be a small group of people that have a significant impact for his glory. That is his plan and purpose, that we would be people of influence. And that is his plan for Abraham. The story then transitions. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. It is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And then this is an ominous statement. If not, I will know it. This is the answer to verse 17. God says to Abraham, or God in dialogue, I'm sorry, with himself says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? He talks about the place of Abraham in the world, and he says, you know what? I'm not going to hide it from him. And then verse 20 and 21 tell us the intention of Almighty God. It's a shocking revelation when God says, I am going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Well, because chapter 13 of Genesis and verse 13 says that Sodom, when Lot chose to move in that direction, it says that Sodom was a wicked city that sinned greatly. Okay, that's its, that's its reputation. Okay, it is the sin city of the ancient world. God is going down there. Abraham, in his heart, knows what that means. He knows that if God is going down to visit Sodom and Gomorrah, God doesn't tell him he's bringing judgment. Abraham just assumes that that's what's going to happen. No statement from God that he's going to bring judgment. Just that he's going to go down and see if what he has heard about the city is, in fact, the truth about the city. Abraham knows that it is not a pretty place Morally, it is a place that we all know for sexual immorality. Okay, we are all very aware that's the reputation of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if I said to you, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Is it simply for that reason? Okay, and I think the answer is found in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49. It says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant 
overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Okay, how many of you, when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment of God against them, even factor in the issue of justice? Okay, it's fascinating, isn't it? In fact, I think that when I look at this statement, they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and did not help the poor and needy, that I think that may at times describe Tim Hoff, if I'm being honest. That we can tend to become self-reliant people. Yes, the sexual immorality, it was serious before God and merited His judgment. But let's be very careful that we don't think of wicked places and think only of those things. Think also about the things that may find a foothold, a stronghold in our lives. Okay, and don't think just about a particular sexual sin. Think about the broader picture that God calls us to in relationship to purity. What is the text saying? The text is saying that Abraham understands what God is about to do, that judgment is coming, and as a result, what does Abraham do? Abraham rushes into God's presence and on six occasions begins to beg for the favor of God for Sodom. What do we learn about the character of God and prayer in this next section? The first thing we learn is that God sees all things. God sees all things. It's a fascinating statement that God would say the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, it is so great, and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see. Because what do we know about the knowledge of God? We know that God knows what? Everything, right? So why does he say to Abraham, I'm going to send my two angels down to see if the outcry is true, then I will know. Why would God use that kind of figure or picture for Abraham? Okay, and I think the answer is something like this. God is demonstrating for Abraham that his judgment would be based upon a full, accurate, truthful understanding of the nature of things in the city of Sodom. It's, God's not going down to get information. He has all the information that he could possibly have. Why does he go? Well, he goes so that Abraham will know that when the judgment of God comes, that that judgment of God was merited and just. It was appropriate. It was fair. Does God owe that visit? No, He doesn't. He doesn't. And God says to Abraham, number one, I see all things. I have come down. I remember as a young boy, I lived in a smaller ranch house. Before we put an addition on that house, I had three brothers. We all were born within a 27-month period, and we all slept in one bedroom. And uh, nighttime was interesting. Okay, one bed was a bunk bed and then the other bed. I can't even remember who slept where. I think I was up top for some reason. There were times that my, uh, my dad would, in response to noises from our room, uh, activity, wrestling, who knows what's going on, okay, would say to us, uh, you guys need to be quiet. You guys need to settle down. And things would ramp up a little bit. And then the final threat was what? Don't make me come in there, okay? And that was like, okay, he's serious now. All right, you, you got the point. What's going on here? God has come 
And for Sodom, that is not a good day. Okay, why? Because the, 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 the picture of the two angels coming and doing a survey or a moral audit of Sodom and Gomorrah was what? It was to validate that the cry of injustice that had been rising up towards God was in fact the case. And it was a picture for Abraham that God is about to bring judgment and it is not based upon speculation, not based upon hearsay. God has in His messengers come. He knows all things. And He has come down to verify. Secondly, verse 25. Another thing we learn about God. And this, I think, is the basis of Abraham's plea and intercession from God. End of verse 21, he says, If the city is not as wicked as I have heard, I will know. Okay, to me, that is one of the most sobering statements in this text. I will know. Okay, God sees all things. But I think the other thing that becomes very clear is that Abraham now begins to appeal to God on the basis of the justice of God. That God will always do what is right. Verse 23, he says, will God sweep away the righteous with the guilty? Which is to say what? Okay, I think it's to say that Abraham understands how seriously unrighteous the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is. Abraham is not rising up in defense and saying, oh no, the city's not as bad as you think. What is he saying? If there simply are 50 righteous people in the city, would you withhold your judgment? 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. You know what God says to him? God says, Abraham, if there are 10 righteous, I'll spare that city. I won't destroy the righteous with the ungodly. And so Abraham is kind of working through this discussion with God. What does this tell us about Abraham? Okay, I think what it tells us about Abraham is this. He is not a proud modern man who is accusing God of being vindictive and judgmental. He's not questioning the right of God to bring judgment on the city. What he's saying is, if there is a righteous remnant there, wouldn't you hold off judgment so that that righteous remnant could salt their sphere of influence? That's the picture. Okay, that's the picture. So verse 23, far be it from you. Verse 27, I'm in dust and ashes. Verse 30, don't be angry. Verse 31, I have been so bold. Verse 32, once more. All right, it's all of the statements that Abraham makes as he comes into the presence of God to seek mercy. Abraham does not question God's right in this case to judge. He simply pleads for the mercy of God. One of the lessons I think that we learn in this text is that as we often do, wink at sin, God does not. God does not say, boys will be boys and men will be men. He doesn't excuse away sin. Okay, He calls us very powerfully and very clearly to a standard of righteousness. Here's the truth that I think emerges. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ because He knows all things and He will bring a just and appropriate response to it. The warning that emerges is something like this. The fate of Sodom and Gomorrah serves as a warning to us that God takes sin seriously. And what else serves as a warning about the seriousness of our sin? Okay, the cross of Christ also serves as a warning, as a reminder, if you will, of the seriousness of sin. So we learn that God sees all things, 
we learn that God always does what is right, but then this is the truth that I think emerges in verse 32. He said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. What if only 10 can be found there? God answers, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Folks, ask yourself this question. Why did God destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? The answer is not, it's not one fold, it's twofold. Okay, at one level, the wickedness of the city is crying out. Okay, there is enough sin there to merit the judgment of God. But what is another reason that this city is deserving of judgment? You can't even find ten righteous people there. Ten people that are committed to living according to God's standard. So you find this judgment because of the sinfulness, yes, but also there is judgment because there is a lack of any semblance of righteousness there. Should there be a semblance of righteousness there? Yes. Lot is there. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. He knows the living God. And the book of Peter will later tell us that Lot was at some degree a righteous, he knew God. But there is not enough righteousness to even merit the favor of God. What does that tell us? God says, Abraham, if there are ten righteous, I'll spare that city. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God is incredibly merciful. He is shocking mercy. That God would say, for the sake of ten, I'll spare the city. Folks, what does that say to you? What does that say to me? What does that say to us as a church family, to the church in our community? You know what it says? God wants to use a righteous remnant, a small group of people, to have a significant impact upon the world. That's what he wants to do. That's ultimately what this text comes down to. Righteous people interceding before God to see his glory revealed and lives changed. That's what God wants. A few people devoted to and on fire for God can make an enormous difference. Proverbs 14.24 says it this way. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 28.12. When the righteous triumph, there is great elation. But when the wicked rise to power, men go in to hiding. Folks, here's the challenge. For us as parents, passing on to our kids. And then for us before God. God sees everything in our lives. Nothing is hidden from Him. Our lives are an open book before God. Are you living in light of that knowledge? Are you realizing that righteous people, if they pray and engage, if the salt gets out of the shaker, do we realize the impact, the difference that we can make in our sphere of influence for the glory of God? And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, Here's here's the the warning, I think, that emerges from this text. One is that that God is incredibly patient. Sodom and Gomorrah probably merited the judgment of God a long time ago from a human perspective. But what does God do? God extends mercy. He extends patience. Even here, He extends an opportunity. Abraham, if there are ten righteous there, I won't destroy this city. But what does it tell us on the other side of the coin, though? Here's, I believe, what it says. Sin is serious with God. Okay, and this is why I said at the beginning, this is a difficult text. Why? Abraham prays for something that he is not in this context going to receive. Okay, and and in fact, the salvation that's going to take place here is in the smallest number. Lot, 
his wife temporarily, and his two daughters before the city is destroyed. Okay, that's what's going to happen. Four people will be rescued in light of this intercession on the part of Abraham. Okay, what does it say? Okay, it says that God is incredibly patient and long-suffering. But it also tells me that eventually the judgment of God will come. Okay, so you can push it out and push it out and push it out and say, I'm not seeing it. But eventually, folks, it will come. And I think we need to reckon with that fact. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So here's the bottom line. If you have not trusted Christ yet, if you have not rested in His mercy, judgment for your sin is coming. But because of His mercy, God sent His Son Jesus Christ to stand in your place and to bear the consequence of your sin. He's merciful, folks. Okay? If I asked this question this morning, if I said, has Tim Hoff gotten what he deserves for his sin? Okay? Here's my simple response. I'm going to check to see if I have a pulse. And if I do, my answer is this. I have not gotten what I deserve for my sin. Why? Because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what I deserve for my sin, is death. But because of His love, what does God do? He sends His Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ died for our sins. The just for the unjust, that He might do what? That He might bring us to God. Okay, that's what He's done. Why? Because sin is serious with God. It demands judgment. He can't wink at it. He can't ignore it. He can't take the modern view that says, well, it's just not that serious. No, He's a God who is just. He's a God who sees all things. But He is a God who is merciful. Would you pray for your community? For your family? For your nation? For your workplace? Some of you may think, I feel like I live a little bit in Sodom. In a difficult place. Where unrighteousness is prevalent. Can I make a difference? Abraham did. His family ultimately did. And by the grace of God, so can everyone in this room. Pray for your city. Intercede on their behalf. Mom and dad. Live and speak the truth courageously to your kids. Let them know the standard that God expects from them. Call them to live to that standard for the glory of God. Raise a righteous remnant. And for every one of us here this morning, I would say this. Make a commitment before God this morning to live a holy life. Why? So that you can influence the world around you. Be the salt. Be the light that Jesus called you to be. Maximize your impact. If the secular world can look at us, or look at their world and say, 2% of people committed can make a substantial difference, then should that not be a wake-up call to the church? God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to use you because you're going to train your kids, you're going to live a righteous life, and we are going to reach the world. If this morning your fear is that you deserve the judgment of God, I would in no way seek to talk you out of that truth. But what I would say to you this morning is this, Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
You know why people in Sodom experienced judgment? They experienced judgment because they did not flee to God for mercy, for help, and for hope through His grace. You're here today. You have an opportunity. You have a chance to cry out to God, to realize that His, His patience is opportunity. Okay, if you have breath in your lungs this morning, you can go to God and trust in the shed blood of Christ who paid the price on the cross for your sin. Which begs the question that leads us into our communion service this morning. How does a just God, or how can a just God, be so merciful? Does he ignore my sin? Does he minimize my sin? How can he be merciful? How can he forgive? How can he show grace to me? The answer to that question is found in Jesus Christ. It's not that there is no consequence for my sin and for yours. It's that the consequence for our sin has been born on the back of Christ. Folks, that's the center of the Christian message. There is hope for Sodom because God is merciful. There is hope for every person in this room. Even if I don't know your personal story, there is hope for you because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung on the cross to bear the full weight, the full consequence of your sin. Therefore, God can be just in forgiving your sin. Why? Because in the person of His Son, He stood in your place on Calvary's cross and bore the full consequence of your sin. It's not that it's ignored in the modern view of things, minimized, trivialized. No, it is taken dead seriously on the cross of Christ for every one of us. And if you've never trusted Christ this morning, I would encourage you, while God's patience is extended to you, flee to Him. Find mercy in Him. Find forgiveness. Find grace. And once you begin to experience that grace, here's what you will find. That the Spirit of God will give you the power to live an exemplary, godly, Christ-honoring Christian life. In spite of the fact whether people believe that that's possible or not, the Spirit of God will so change you that you can become a young man, a young woman, a mom, a dad, a single person who lives for the glory of God and is a light and a blessing to the world around them. Father, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, 